I'm Rex Black, president of RBCS, a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, we have delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. We have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services to companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I'm the author of many books on software testing, as well as being the past president of the ISTQB, co-author of the ISTQB's Agile Syllabi, uh, one done and two in progress, as well as the author and uh, contributing author and lead editor of the upcoming book, Agile Testing Foundations. Uh, attendance at today's webinar earns PMI PDUs. Thank you, Morali Gathula, for reviewing the materials for PDU status and making valuable suggestions. Attendees will receive an email telling them how to claim PDUs, including the PDU code. PDUs are available for live webinar attendance only. If, any if you have any questions during the course of the webinar, submit them at any time, but please note that they are answered only at the end. I hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not-just-for-profit company. If you enjoy our free web webinars and feel that they demonstrate solid insights into the kinds of testing challenges you face, please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. We're happy to provide a quote for any such help you might need. Contact us at info at rbcs-us.com. So today, we're going to talk about Agile testing in the real world. I'm coming to you from sunny and actually warm South Texas. I have the air conditioning on here, if you can believe that. And I, thanks to my friends Tim and Julie Forbeck, I am drinking a uh, glass of homemade lemonade from uh, fresh lemons from in South Texas. So. I'm sure many of you are uh, sitting in somewhat warmer or colder climates and probably not wanting lemonade but hot coffee. But anyway, this is the way South Texas rolls in the winter. Um, so agile testing in the real world, what does that look like? Now, if you've done your homework on this topic, you probably know that there are a lot of books and articles and webinars and so forth out there that will talk about how great Agile is. Um, and at a lot of those books, if you read them, articles and webinars and so forth, are describing what I would call a purist approach um, that takes the Agile manifesto uh, very literally or that at least uh, takes their interpretation of the Agile manifesto very literally. And um, uh, phrases such as, that's not agile can be heard in organizations like that, that follow this kind of approach or that, uh, you know, when you, you talk to people about things that sometimes happen in the real world, um, when, when agile theory collides with reality, you know, they yell, that's not agile. Um, well, uh, you know, but whether, whether it meets somebody's definition of agile who's never been in your company, and doesn't know the problems you're facing, really it doesn't matter, right? What matters is, are you able to adapt Agile practices in interesting and creative ways that, that work for you? Um, and what are the different opportunities, challenges, risks, and benefits that uh, come out of these attempts to, uh, to fit Agile uh, into the real world, and how do those interact with uh, testing and quality? So 
Those are all the things that we will examine over the course of the next uh, hour. Now, I'm going to assume that you're all uh, familiar with Agile to some extent. Maybe you're working in an organization that is currently doing Agile or that uh, is uh, uh, thinking about doing Agile or maybe some of the groups, some of the development projects that are going on are following Agile. But basically, classic Agile, you would have a team of you know anywhere from three to nine people working together in these iterations or if you're doing scrum, sprints. And um, in each one of these sprints, uh, there would be some uh, content selected out of what's uh, often called the product backlog. Uh, and that's the sprint backlog or iteration backlog. And these are uh, requirements uh, often phrased in the form of what are called user stories, which can take on a lot of different guises. And that content is built uh, and tested within the sprint. And all of the, um, theoretically, all of the uh, development, testing, and other activities associated with getting that particular set of user stories that's in the iteration backlog or sprint backlog ready for delivery to customers occurs during that sprint. Uh, and that there is nothing left to do uh, to make those uh, user stories ready to deliver post-sprint. Um, so that's your, your increment by which the product has grown and uh, you either uh, go and do another one immediately. In some cases, there will be a delivery uh, without um, uh, additional sprints so that every sprint was, culminates in a delivery and then you build again, deliver again, and, and some of our clients work like that. Others, uh, in other cases, there will be uh, multiple sprints prior to there being any delivery. Um, what Agile Theory would say is that at, at the end of each iteration, you are supposed to have a potentially shippable software or potentially shippable increment, or you'll hear different phrases. But it basically means that the quality is good enough that if you wanted to put it in production, if you wanted to deliver it to customers, you could, and that would be uh, that would be fine. That would be acceptable to them. Um, usually within the uh, context of the Agile uh, iterations, there will be unit testing done by the developers. Uh, ideally, there will also be some form of code review. Sometimes it's done using something called pair programming. Um, other times, it's uh, it's a more traditional uh, kind of code review that would happen across all the developers uh, within the team. And ideally, there's also some kind of feature verification test where the user stories and their acceptance criteria are used as the basis for a set of tests, which are uh, developed and run. Sometimes this will be used uh, done via something called acceptance test-driven development or uh, alternatively behavior-driven development. And in those cases, the ideal outcome is that there is a automated set of tests that are produced similar to the automated set of tests produced by the unit testing, again, ideal case, and that all of those would end up in a continuous integration framework and they'd be part of the um, uh, testing uh, uh, process and build process that happens on, uh, um, you know, at least a daily basis. Uh, some agilists will, will call for builds much more frequently than that, though. 
uh, once the size of those tests have increased, then that's um, uh, sometimes become difficult. Okay, so agile would be uh, considered to be the opposite of a sequential life cycle or waterfall. Uh, usually when agile purists are talking about, oops, I'm sorry. When agile purists are talking about alternatives to agile, they will use the phrase waterfall, and there will often be a great deal of derisiveness associated with um, waterfall in general or any vestiges of waterfall that might remain in the in the process. So you'll hear um, uh, some agile, agile purists uh, mockingly talk about scrummer fall if there is some sort of set of activities that happen to a uh, um, set of uh, new code uh, post iteration, um, so that's that's considered to be somewhat heretical. Uh, more on that later, but basically, in an, in a uh, sequential lifecycle model or, or waterfall lifecycle model, all of the tasks and activities associated with a given phase would be completed before the next phase would start, which is the opposite of agile in the sense that in agile all of the activities and work products associated with a given uh, iteration are completed before the next iteration starts. Um, but within the iteration, there's allowing there's there's provision for a considerable amount of overlap between the definition of the requirements, the design decisions, coding, unit testing, integration testing, and system testing, and all of these things are presumed to be happening. Uh, in a continuous and overlapping fashion. And in fact, it's the hallmark of a good agile um, process that it doesn't um, resemble a mini, a mini waterfall within the iteration because that's usually an indication that uh, the user stories are too big and they're not being broken down small enough and testing work can't actually start until towards the end of the iteration, which is, uh, which is a problem. And in sequential lifecycle models, that's the basic assumption, is that we're not going to really start testing something in urgent, in, in earnest, or at least form, uh, formally, until the, the whole thing has been built. Now, there is something in between this, or in addition to this, which are the traditional iterative lifecycles like RUP, Rational Unified Process, and RAD, Rapid Application Development. I'm not going to get into those, um, to, just to point out, though, that those are not agile in that they, uh, they allow one iteration to start even while testing activities and other activities associated with previous iterations are still going on. Um, that's a deliberate part of the, the uh, way those, those life cycles work. Um, so that's yet, yet another. And, and so there is still quite a bit of RUP in one form or another out there and quite a bit of waterfall in one form or another out there. Um, as well as hybrids between Agile and Waterfall and uh, RUP and Waterfall and Agile and RUP and so forth. So uh, it's certainly cross-pollination happens. Now, one of the, um, one of the uh, good, really good things to come out of Agile, though you, you can argue that this, that, you know, is this a, an outgrowth of Agile or is, or is this just a natural outgrowth of the whole open source um, movement? As it were, um, or you know, the, the are these the <laughs> the love children of of, of both of those things? Um, uh, it probably probably the latter. Um, and you know, there's a lot of tools that have come about, and uh, they're mostly free. 
and you know free is free is good right free is always in budget um so you have all, the, all of the different uh, unit testing frameworks the x unit frameworks the jenkins hudson stuff that supports continuous integration cucumber and ruby um on the on the bdd side selenium uh as an alternative to the commercial um graphical user interface automation approaches, fitness for things like ATDD, all sorts of static code analysis and code coverage tools are out there. So there's just a, a plethora of stuff. And our clients that are that are most successful with Agile um, will have uh, some amount of traction with many of these uh, tools and, and actually successfully using them. Now, this is not an unmitigated um, uh, benefit or, or or ideal situation in some ways in that um, some of the common process management tools that are out there, uh, namely Jira and Rally, were clearly not designed by or for testers. And when they get used as bug management, test management tools, um, I, it, it reminds me of the stories I hear about what happens, reminds me of of what Stalin said about trying to make Poland into a communist country. He said that, that communism would fit, fit Poland like a saddle fits a cow, um, which didn't stop him from trying it. And it's sort of the same thing with a lot of my clients that um, they're, they're, they are putting the, the bug and test management uh, saddle on the uh, task management cow of Jura and Rally, and it's, it's not going so well. Now, uh, metrics. Um, some uh, some folks out there in the agile-ish kind of world, uh, especially the Papadik, um pair, uh, will um, are not big fans of of, of measurements and, and, and uh, having metrics. But what we've seen with a lot of our clients is that they are still, uh, you know, especially enterprise scale. Uh, clients uh, that, that are building applications, and you know there are dozens of dozens or hundreds of people involved across multiple sprint teams, and they need to coordinate and so forth. Uh, they still have retained a robust uh, test metrics uh, program, and they measure things like you know where are we in terms of getting through our tests, and uh, um, have we covered different risks? If they're doing risk-based testing, and where, what's our our bug status? Uh, and, and we'll be pretty careful about making sure that the, the definition of done for user story includes no no must fix bugs being identified or being uh, op remaining open against that bug uh, story. Um, now um, we have seen some organizations that don't measure the bugs that have been uh, um, found uh, unless they are not fixed during the sprint. Um, so they only they only track the bugs if the bug will will uh, be fixed in a subsequent sprint. Now um, this this to me is a real issue uh, because it's going to result in a very significant loss of visibility in terms of your your true uh, process uh, quality capability. Um, now some people will say, ah, there's too much overhead involved in tracking these bugs, and we need to focus on fixing the problems," um, which you know, is, is to me, it's it's just it's shooting without aiming, effectively. Um, you're, you're not going to get you're not going to be able to get good insights in terms of, 
you know, what kind of bugs are we introducing and where are we introducing them and so forth if you don't, uh, if you don't measure them. Uh, certainly velocity is a, a major metric um, and it relates to testing in the sense of if you have um, uh, the definition of done um, includes uh, the, the stipulation that no, there are no must-fix bugs open against the user story, then the user story is only going to count as part of the velocity once all the bugs have been fixed and, and all the tests have been run against it. So that's, uh, that's helpful, though. It, you have to keep in mind that that is primarily a project metric. It is not really a product metric in the sense of measuring the quality of, um, of, of the software as a whole, uh, just because usually those tests that are associated with the user story are pure verification tests. They're derived from the user story and the acceptance criteria themselves. Uh, they don't necessarily uh, include an adequate uh, validation component, so you have to be a little careful with relying entirely on velocity. <coughs> Certainly looking at um, the, the amount of code that's been added, um, though that's it's probably much better to look at uh, uh, velocity user stories completed because when you measure how much code's been added, you're sort of incentivizing uh, flabby code. Uh, definitely code coverage is something that um, that uh, is, is best practice to measure. Um, the, the code coverage has been achieved uh, for the uh, uh, all the tests that have been run. Um, you know, I, and ideally that's going to be something that's part of your continuous integration framework, so you're able to uh, uh, monitor that on an ongoing basis. And it's good to have targets to say that you, you're going to get to 100% statement of branch coverage, though you have to be a little bit careful. Some of these uh, open source code coverage tools actually have bugs in them. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And uh, the metrics will not be completely accurate. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, something to... to uh, be aware of. Now, um, Agile uh, creates various testing challenges as well as testing opportunities, and I have done uh, a webinar on each of those. I'll probably revisit those again in the next year. Um, but in the meantime, uh, if you want to drill down on any of these that I'm going to mention here briefly, uh, you can go to the recorded webinars, uh, which are out on our website. Take a look under Agile, and you'll see there's one on Agile testing challenges and one on Agile testing opportunities. But the things that um, you know that uh, come up um, for our, our clients from a uh, testing challenges point of view during Agile is, of course, the 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 amount of change and the speed of change is it takes some real getting used to. Um, it can especially trying to uh, keep up from a regression coverage point of view while also testing new uh, code that's being added. I just had a uh, brief uh, free consulting. We do these, offer these one-hour free consulting services uh, to new clients that kind of wanted to kick the tires on our consulting. And I was just talking to uh, someone, and, and she, was, she and her colleague were telling me about this being one of their biggest challenges. It's just there's just so much. There's all this change, and... We have to regression test, and we have to test the new features, and we just don't have time. Um, which is also, you know, that's part part and parcel of the second challenge there too, of just trying to trying to keep your head above water in short iterations. There's just there's often more work than, than can be done. 
Um, yeah, the regression risk, being able to put effective automation in place to manage the regression risk. Automation is one of those things that when done poorly uh, will really blow up in your face. Um, and, and we've had a number of clients tell us sad stories about that. Um, theoretically, there's going to be good thorough unit testing in Agile, but I've uh, certainly heard plenty of people tell me stories of woe about getting inadequately unit tested code or inconsistently unit tested. Some of it is well tested, some of it's not. And developers will tell stories about things like uh, coupling in the legacy code that makes it impossible to unit test, blah, blah, blah. And you're, you know, what, what ends up happening, of course, is that garbage is thrown over the fence, which exacerbates the, the short iteration problem. Um, what is the expected behavior? Um, this is the, the, the source of the expected behavior is the test oracle. Um, and it sometimes can be a problem uh, getting test reliable and adequate test oracles. Uh, user stories don't have enough information or developers and product owners have sidewalk or, conver or hallway conversations where they change what something's supposed to do, but it doesn't get documented or passed on to the tester. Same thing happens just from a test basis point of view of, of changes occur and uh, you're, you're, not, you're not notified. Um, Meeting overload. One of the things that the Agile Manifesto talks about is using face-to-face -face conversations over documents. Well, there's another name for face-to-face -face conversation, and that name is meeting. Um, and some of our clients have, have really uh, uh, jumped the shark on, on meetings. And, and it's just, uh, you know, I had a, um, somebody I talked to during an, ad, an assessment of an Agile organization once. He said, I can't. Can't believe they call it agile. They should call it couch potato. He said, "There's, there's just it's endless series of meetings." So that's a you know that's a failure in implementation. It's not supposed to happen, but it sometimes does. Um, not having a, a good understanding of the importance of independent testing. This is becoming less of an issue, but it's uh, teams that are new to agile, especially if they hire a really dogmatic agile coach to to do the transition. You can run into this. Overcommitment in the sprints is a very common thing of just, uh, especially amongst organizations that don't do estimates and that don't measure their actual velocity. They just perpetually are going to overcommit. Uh, siloing in the sprint teams when you have big teams trying to build complex things that have to work together and there's no uh, uh, centripetal force to hold them together. There's ways of dealing with that, which I will get to. Uh, the accumulation of technical debt, especially. Um, where uh, bugs get deferred and, and you get into uh, sort of a pseudo waterfall kind of situation where you have an endless series of hardening or uh, stabilization sprints uh, that, that come towards the end of the project. Um, this can happen also just because of the uh, uh, organization saying, well, we don't, we don't want to do any upfront design work and this, you know, they, they end up painting themselves into a corner. Um, the Agile hype cycle, so the, the, the hype cycle is something that's uh, courtesy of the Gartner um, Consulting Company, um, the analyst organization. Um, if you've not heard of the hype cycle, you should go take a look at it. This is starting to be much less of a problem than it was when I originally did this presentation eight years ago. Uh, at that point, Agile was really hyped, and it was, you know, Agile was going to cure cancer and bring on immortality and 
you know, I think people are now getting less dogmatic and more realistic, but certainly there can be some very high expectations, um, which are sort of, you know, to, to justify the amount of disruption that's associated with changing everybody over from waterfall to agile, you really have to make some pretty big promises to an organization and that can result in disappointment. And then things, uh, non-functional tests, especially performance tests, reliability tests, security tests, usability tests, uh, those are, uh, those kind of non-functional quality characteristics are really emergent uh, properties of the system as a whole, as opposed to being strictly associated with one or two user stories. And so uh, that can, that can create some, some real challenges when teams don't uh, set aside some kind of capability to do uh, uh, good performance testing. Now, that's the, the those are the challenges. Now, there's plenty of testing opportunities that are created by going to Agile. Certainly, the the uh, if you exploit the available tools, and you've got a good you know sort of geeky kind of uh, technocrat mindset within your your teams. Uh, then you know good automated uh, tests, especially automated unit tests, but also using things like fitness and, and cucumber and ruby or the ATDD and or BDD stuff, exploiting static code analysis opportunities um, as well as unit testing to try to capture and remove bugs as, as uh, soon as possible, as close to the point of origin as possible, code coverage to keep people honest with respect to what has and hasn't been tested, uh, taking advantage of those continuous integration frameworks, especially when you snap the various automated unit tests and functional tests in there. Uh, if you've got good automation throughout all levels of testing, that's a real plus. Um, doing real solid requirements reviews. I mean, you know, it's a constant tale of woe from testers on, on uh, waterfall projects. So you say, you know, the management gives uh, lip service to this idea that the testers are supposed to be involved up front, but it never really happens. And what happens is by the time we get involved, they've already started building and we're looking at the requirements. We're like, what the hell do these even say? Um, how are we supposed to test this? Right? So the beauty in Agile, at least if it's done right, is that the testers are involved in the user story reviews during the, the, uh, release planning or sprint planning. Um, excuse me, the, the iteration planning or sprint planning, the beginning of each iteration. Um, so they look at that. They're looking at the acceptance criteria. There's there's collaboration in terms of what it would mean to for the requirements to be met, and at least from a verification point of view, you know, it's it's a much it's a much better uh, situation than, than sometimes happens with um, Waterfall. Now, that's not to say that this always happens. These are opportunities. These are not givens. Right. So you have to make sure that your organization implements Agile in a way that you can exploit these opportunities. Um, the reasonable workload, theoretically, there's supposed to be a sustainable pace. Now, I think that that Schwaber and company, when they decided to name uh, the activities, uh, the, 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 the iterations within uh, Scrum, they decided to name those sprints, didn't do us any favors with respect to reasonable workloads because it's not sustain. That's not a sustainable pace. <laughs> um, so, you know, but in organizations that take that part of the Agile Manifesto seriously, there should be less panic, though we've certainly run into plenty of clients where 
the last weekend of every iteration, everybody's in there trying to bang away to make sure the product is done, which is hardly uh, sustainable. Um, control of technical debt. It can be done um, via, you know, a focus on on, on doing design, um, not getting all caught up in that dogma of, oh, we don't do design work up front. But looking at design, looking at architecture, and making sure that bugs are fixed as they are discovered. Um, one of our, some of our clients, one of the ways that they deal with this uh, to not accumulate technical debt is they have what they call fixed bugs first. Uh, so at the beginning of each iteration, any bugs that were discovered in the previous iteration that weren't fixed will be fixed. Um, and that's just sort of a, that's a natural drag that on their velocity. They know that's going to happen, so their velocity is calculated based on that. So again, here there's um, recorded uh, webinars on this and on the challenges if you want to go and get the full detailed breakdown of those opportunities and challenges. Some of those, I would guess, are sounding familiar to you. Hopefully, the challenges are sounding like stuff you have gone through and aren't dealing with anymore, and the opportunities are things that you're starting to take advantage of. Now, uh, Agile-ish. There's Agile, like the way the books describe it, and then there's what I call Agile-ish, which is highly customized implementation of Agile. Um, and what you see here is um, one of the ways that one of our clients works, and this is a Agile-ish, it's a hybrid of effectively RUP, Rational Unified Process, and Scrum. Uh, so they call this train life cycle. So what you see is a seven-week time period here. Um, and so each, uh, the set, the full set of activities associated with each iteration is seven weeks long. Um, as you can see there, that there's a planning and development and a testing uh, stage. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the approximate length. Each is about two and a half weeks. Uh, and... Uh, the freeze points there are, there's content freeze at the end of planning, and then there's a, a code freeze at the end of development, and then there's testing, and then there's release. Um, and notice that these things are happening in parallel. Uh, that's a very roughish kind of approach. Um, and um, because of the way they're, they're able to parallelize, parallelize these things, they are able to release roughly every three weeks. Um, now, a purist would say, oh, geez, that's not agile, that's rough. But they do a lot of things that are adopted from extreme, extreme programming and scrum. Um, uh, you know, so is it agile? They call it agile. They consider themselves agile. Um, do they care if people from outside would look at that and say that's not agile? Nope, they don't care. Now, here's another instance of stuff being a little different in the real world than it is in the books. Um, so we've got, we have a client, uh, well, we have more than one client like this, but this, this particular client um, is, a, there's a, they're a Fortune 50 company. They have both an online and a bricks and mortar presence. Uh, they're in retail um, in, a, in a pretty uh, broad niche of, uh, of retail, but, a, but it is a very specific niche. Um, 
And um, so they do uh, both uh, waterfall development projects and uh, agile projects, as well as what would be called uh, acquisition and customization projects, too, which are, you know, they go out and they buy off-the-shelf product and they customize it. Um, so uh, there's all these projects going on in parallel. Now, I'm only showing one of them here, that, and, and this one is following uh, following an iterative approach. So we have our, our standard iterations. And what happens is at the end of each iteration, the uh, uh, product as it stands at that point that's being developed gets dropped into a system integration test process. And that's a separate team that does that, separate independent testing team. Um, there's also a separate independent team that's responsible for developing the automated regression tests um, that are used as part of system integration testing. Because remember, each one of these projects that's being done and proceeding all in parallel, well, all of this stuff talks to everything else. So there's a lot of integration testing that has to happen. And so that's, that's what's happening in that system integration test. There is testing happening within the um, iterations themselves, of course, but uh, there, there's this extensive system integration testing that's, that needs to happen. Um, there's also performance testing that goes on. Now, they usually wait um, to start the performance testing until they're getting closer to doing a, a release, which, you know, I've, I've told them you probably want to get that going earlier, but that's just the way they do it. That's, again, a separate team. Uh, they do use stabilization sprints, also called hardening sprints. Um, and during those sprints, uh, they are uh, delivering bug fixes on an ongoing basis in the system integration test as opposed to promoting a, a new build into the system integration test at the end of each uh, two- to four-week uh, iteration. Uh, this is a little more chaotic than it looks here in that you have to imagine that there are dozens of projects going on in parallel, and um, those can deliver in a... I wouldn't call it a completely asynchronous and uncoordinated fashion, but it's pretty darn close to an asynchronous and uncoordinated fashion into the system integration test, um, which which can certainly create problems. But, you know, does it work? It works for them. They're a Fortune 50 company. I, You know, they probably spend a billion dollars a year on their IT. They're very proud of it, and they do a lot of really complicated stuff. Now, here's, here's another different scenario. This is a company that builds investment banking software. They have uh, three uh, versions per year that they create. Now, the, the, the software is built according to agile approaches as, as part of those, those uh, four-month release processes. Um, and it's a very um, um, modular uh, system of systems. So there's, there's actually more than two systems. There's multiple systems, and each system contains more than two components, but I'm just showing two systems with two components each just to give you a flavor of what goes on there on the, on the left-hand side. But what happens is that that development process occurs for some period of time, and then towards the end of that four-month period, they go into uh, an in integration and integration test, and this is more sequential. Uh, for each system, and then they do integrating a system integration test. Those are done by independent teams with uh, separate tools, um, and and that that's happening at the end of each one of these four-month periods. 
Um, now, at that point, the release is available, but of course, you can't really just go out and force the bank to take the new release. They're going to take a new release when there's some new feature that they want, which could be a couple years after their last release. Um, and this product is highly customizable. It has it basically has some built-in scripting capabilities that the banks use to implement exactly the features that they want. Um, these the process of, of installing a new client or upgrading an existing client involves that customization and then the, and then uh, testing and then an acceptance test by the um, by the bank itself. And that that process can be you know anywhere from a few months to as long as a year. Um, so you notice that there are some strong sequential elements here that are just inherent in the way in the architecture of the system and the nature of their their customers. Uh, you know, this is people get you know, all in love with the idea of DevOps and continuous delivery and so forth. It's like, well, that, that's fine, but bank investment banks are not going to allow their vendors to potentially disrupt their ability to cust to, to conduct business um, just because the vendor says, oh, but it's so cool, it's DevOps, it's continuous delivery. They're going to say, no, cool is cool is making you know boatloads of money. Um, cool is not having regression risk that comes on because somebody forgot to test something. Now, another thing that we find interesting with some of our clients is uh, what, what happens with the outsourcing. I was at a conference in Kiev um, back a few years ago, um, and um, uh, Alistair uh, Cockburn was there, uh, or Coburn, I guess the correct way to pronounce it. Uh, He's uh, Scott, um, and um, he um, he came out and made a blanket statement. Look, if you're not co-located, you're not agile. And you know, so then Coburn is one of the co-founders of Agile. He's one of the signatories of the original Agile Manifesto. So he you know he's got every right to say that. But the thing is, <laughs> he can say whatever he wants, but that doesn't stop our clients from actually doing it. And we have clients that are doing a lot of outsourced testing and development and, and using Agile. And, so, yeah, sometimes it doesn't work. That's true, but sometimes it does work. Usually what seems to be something of a magic ingredient here is some sort of on-site point of contact um, that just purely having the outsourced team coordinated via emails and so forth doesn't seem to be um, – a real good solution, especially if there's a lot of change. Um, in in some of our clients that have distributed work going on, uh, they are they are able to 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 get along with just teleconferencing and so forth, and telepresence systems occasionally, um, just because things are pretty stable and there's not a lot of change. If there's a lot of change, you know, that's that's it gets harder to keep up. Now, definitely one of the things to keep in mind here that's it's a real trend in Agile uh, testing is um, make is saying testers have to have programming skills. Testers have to be technical. Testers have to be able to participate effectively in automation. They have to understand code coverage. 
they have to be conversant in the project languages, development languages that are being used. Um, you know, opinions vary on this and how, whether people like this or don't like this. Um, you know, it is, though. I mean, that's the thing. So whether you like it or not, whether you think it should be happening or not, it certainly is happening. I know there are plenty of people out there that just rail about this and go on and on and on. Um, you know, and I, to me, it's almost a, you know, you, there is just simply no point in in spitting into the wind on this. Uh, you're you're going to be better off if you're a tester, uh, get, making your improving your technical skills. If you don't already know how to program, learn how to program. If you don't know some automation skills, learn automation because uh, it, it's, it's just you know. You have the philosophical argument about whether this should or shouldn't be the way that things are, but you can't change the fact that this is the way that things are, and you limit your job options if you uh, obstinately refuse to become more technical on the sort of philosophical grounds of, well, I shouldn't have to know that. It's, uh, you know, okay, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> it's no solace being right when you're unemployed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, the another thing that's interesting here is this introvert extrovert stuff. Um, certainly, if you talk to people that are, that are introverts, um, they will often say, "Geez, this agile stuff can be a real challenge." Um, so, <coughs> excuse me. What what I see is a lot of introverts that uh, when they're forced to work in these sort of open open plan workspaces and so forth, they create a lot of what I would refer to as virtual cubicles by putting on noise-canceling headsets and trying to adjust their hours so that they're um, either, you know, staying late or more likely getting in earlier to avoid the, the crowds. Um, so it's a, that can be a challenge, a cultural shift. Um, now, another thing that's been interesting to watch is the evolution of, uh, you know, of how to preserve independent testing within the context of, um, uh, of Agile. Um, and so, you know, the, the, one of the things that, that happened a lot with earlier on and, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago as companies were going to Agile is they just broke up their test teams. They said, we're not going to have test teams anymore. We're not having test managers anymore. We're taking all the testers, at least the ones we want to keep, and we're embedding them within the teams. Um, and, uh, you know, if you read um, uh, Crispin and Gregory's book on Agile testing, this they don't come right out and say it, but that sort of sounds like what they're describing there is, you know, you're this tester, you're the lone tester, you're stuck within this team. You know, and one of the problems there is that uh, you're part of a team, you're expected to support the team. Um, if you're not comfortable with what's going on from a testing and quality point of view, where do you go with that? You know, uh, you could say, uh, I'm not comfortable, that's not good enough. But, you know, if the rest of the team's like, oh, no, this is fine, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, there's really, you know, editing and, and, and self-editing of the message of the tester becomes a real issue here. Uh, and so, you know, while 
I think small-ish organizations that have a shared vision and, and uh, of what's being built and where it's really easy for somebody who's not happy with what's going on and in their area to go and have a conversation with a senior manager and get that problem resolved, this can work. I've seen this with really small organizations, but this is this is not going to scale. Now, one of the things that, that I've seen tried here too, that I don't see it tried much anymore, is this idea of having a fully independent test team where testers are sort of parachuted into the sprint teams at the end of each iteration, like you know, week week three of a four-week iteration, they'll come in and start working on uh, developing running tests. Um, and this this does a good job of dealing with the the editing and uh, self-editing problem, uh, the, sort of the groupthink issue that can happen uh, with the previous model. The, the trouble is that this sets up the tester as a kind of a, a quality cop uh, showing up at the end and and rendering judgment and of course they don't the testers don't tend to have a lot of context they get some organizations that I've seen do this will parachute the testers into different sprint teams in each at the end of each sprint with the objective of kind of spreading knowledge and awareness around but the, but what it really does is it just spreads ignorance around effectively because people show up and they may they have some idea of the context of the iteration they were working in before from having been in it before, but now they're like, okay, I've got to start over here. So the organization that we've seen try this, all of them ended up abandoning it eventually because it just didn't work out. What we see that works in in organizations of, of medium to larger size is that there is, an, there is the concept of an independent test team and there is a test manager who may be called a test coach, but nonetheless is there and able to take escalations from their testers and, and uh, if, if things you know, go to hell in the handbasket from a quality or testing point of view, that the testers are free to come and escalate to them. But the testers are assigned to work within the team on a long-term basis, multiple iterations. So uh, Sometimes there will be rotation um, where testers will rotate across teams for a knowledge-spreading point of view, but it's it's uh, not every sprint. It's every you know six months or so, um, and and that gives you know the benefits of the knowledge sharing across the different teams and cross pollination of best practices together with the you know people having a long enough learning curve. And then also there will be testers who are assigned to do things that are outside of the sprints, things like test data, test environments, test automation, performance testing, and so forth. And here again, there may very well be rotation where testers work within sprint teams for some period of time, and then they get rotated out to do these uh, longer-term type of tasks that are not really tied to any one single uh, one single sprint or iteration. Uh, this, this seems to be what works the best. Now, what's the impact of Agile on quality? Don't know. I mean, you know, he... Uh, um, if you look at what's, uh, if you look at some of the practices that are associated with Agile, these are proven best practices that that came around long time before the Agile Manifesto was written. And in fact, I mean, if you go through and you look at the stuff that's really good in Agile, you'll realize, oh, well, none of that's new. 
all, all of that is just repackaging of something or renaming of something that's been out for a while. Like, for example, planning poker. People think, wow, playing poker, that's so cool. And then Mike Cohen guy is so clever with a you know, deck of cards and all that stuff. Yeah, well, except that he, he didn't invent it. And it's not new. Uh, planning poker is just a new name for what's called Delphic Oracle Estimation Technique, which goes back to World War II. Um, and uh, it's, it, it's designed to deal with a specific problem in estimation called anchoring. Which is not, it's not just an estimation problem. It's a psychological problem. Um, and, and none of that was anything that was invented. So, so now I don't say this as a criticism necessarily, though I think, you know, um, intellectual plagiarism is an issue. And if, I don't know, I haven't read Cohen's work carefully enough to know if he actually acknowledges the, the, the debt, uh, <laughs> that, that is owed to the Delphic Oracle or not. But, you know, uh, that, that's a, that's purely, kind of thing that somebody like me who writes books worries about, you know, what you what you would want to worry about from a practical point of view is, uh, am I using the best ideas out there? And certainly there's a lot of this reuse of good ideas. Um, that said, there can be some problems here in the sense of uh, defect metrics. Not all organizations are real good about this, so that has obscured the, the situation, though I think organizations are getting better. Uh, Metrics programs in Agile teams are getting better in the eight years since I first did this presentation. It's, it's much less of an issue. Um, and another thing that's kind of going away is sort of the proof by assertion. Um, what I found early on in Agile, uh, organizations that were adopting Agile, was that they're real defensive. Any sort of challenge to say, well, show me that this is actually resulting in better quality. Show me that this is actually an improvement. They would kind of say, um, you know, well, of course it is, and you just don't get it. And, um, I actually had somebody who attended with a talk that I gave where was talking about some of the Agile testing challenges, and his comment was, well, I wish Rex would just go away and leave us alone um, and stop interfering in, in this, like, you know, like it was some sort of little private fiefdom. Um, now, I think this is, is, is going away, but it hasn't all gone away. So I think you still may very well find some people out there that just make these, these grandiose assertions about how wonderful Agile is and how, you know, like I said, it, it cures cancer and, and, you know, allows you to fit into your, the pants that you wore as a teenager, et cetera. Um, you know, it's, uh, reality is, uh, uh, certainly much more mixed in what I see with, with, with our clients. All right, so uh, just wind this down. We'll get into the Q&A here in a, in a second. Uh, certainly, um, we uh, have looked at some of the differences here, and, um, and I mentioned also the hybridization, the mixing of some of these different life cycles. Um, certainly, uh, tools are, are a great thing. Lots of test tools can be, can be um, adopted in Agile, as, uh, either as part of Agile or just part of something else. Um, less of a concern than when I first did this presentation, but still something of a concern is, are, are the metrics programs back to where they were pre-Agile revolution, say, 15 years ago? They're, they're starting to get there, but they, they certainly, we've, we've lost, lost some time with respect to metrics 
in terms of figuring out how to make sure that we're applying them in agile settings. Um, though the interest in metrics is certainly back, um, and, and that's a good thing. As I mentioned, lots of challenges and lots of opportunities from a testing point of view with Agile. And uh, hopefully, as I said, that you you have put the challenges behind you and are starting to exploit the opportunities. Um, you may have recognized some of the things that you're doing in terms of the implementation of the Agile life cycles. There, there there's lots of differences. They they often don't look like the like the purists say, and and that can be just fine. And outsourcing again, you know, uh, whether a purist says it can be done or not, certainly it, it's many are trying, and and uh, some of those are succeeding. Um, skills certainly is an issue. Skills and temperament is an issue. Uh, it's a hurdle to to get over as a tester on an agile team, and that it, it does take some time. Um, independence of testing again, consider that carefully. Make sure that you're that you're not not abandoning that um, and uh, I would say take a hopeful but skeptical attitude towards uh, uh, seeing improvements in in quality as, as your organization goes through uh, agile transformation and and I think it is fair to be uh, evidence driven and to insist on being evidence driven rather than <laughs> assertion driven or eminence driven that you know somebody, Somebody saying, oh, this is, uh, you know, our quality's gotten so much better since we adopted Agile, that I think it's fair to say by what metric and how and, and you know, who's according to whom, you know, and if, if the ultimate arbiter there isn't the customer satisfaction has gone way up from a quality point of view, then, you know, then quality did not get better, All right? I mean, you say, oh, well, look, you know, you our, our the number of metric or number of defects we reported last year is down by fifty percent. Well, yeah, that's because we're not reporting defects in the sprints anymore. <laughs> you know that might be why that happens. So, so yeah, be skeptical, but be hopeful. Things have certainly gotten a lot better uh, in terms of how testing and agile intersect over the the fifteen or so years since it's uh, sort of burst onto the scene. All right, so that concludes the presentation. I'm going to take uh, questions. I've got a few that have already shown up, which is great. Uh, first, a quick word about our services. As I mentioned earlier, we have a team of international consultants that deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services to companies looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. If you receive valuable information from our free webinars, please help us to continue to provide them by making RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. Happy to provide a quote, info at rbcs-us.com. All right, so let's see what we got here. We got questions. Um, Ivana uh, asks, and it's good to hear from you again, Ivana. I hope you had a nice Christmas. Uh, Agile is your usual argument for having light technical specifications. How to ensure good enough test design and coverage without detailed documentation? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. You are going to, uh, um, you are going to struggle with that, that the documentation will be more lightweight than in a traditional world. Um, now, you know, that said, I, I certainly have seen plenty of situations where organizations were doing 
uh, sequential life cycle type of development and had all sorts of problems with respect to specifications. Um, so, I mean, I remember one client uh, telling me that they had a, they had a, uh, what did they call this, product product requirements document, I think it was, and then they had the detailed requirements document, the system requirements document, or something like that, which was the more detailed one. The problem was that that what they were building would change as they were writing the more detailed document, and that would be reflected in the detailed document, but not the higher-level document, but the testers were told that they were supposed to refer to the higher-level document. And it resulted in just huge amounts of confusion about what was supposed to happen, and you know, it was, it was reminiscent of that that joke about you know a man with one watch knows what time it is, and a man with two is never quite sure. Um, it you know because it, they they did not have a reliable reference. Now, I mean, I think what you have to do, Ivana, is is say, look, uh, I need adequate information uh, to define things, and part part of part of um, getting that out in Agile should be that as a tester, you are included in process of defining the user stories. You are included in the process of defining the acceptance criteria for the user stories. And if those acceptance criteria are not testable, then you should be in a position to say, this user story is not ready for development. And the development should not proceed against a user story unless it's possible to say, this is what uh, this is what working looks like. <laughs> if if it does these things, then we can verify that it is it is working according to this user story. Um, now you know that's you have to be able to make that argument not just by assertion but by demonstration. But now what I mean by that is you can't just say you look at the user story and the acceptance criteria and go Pat, not enough, not testable. Try again. You have to be able to say, look, here's specifically what's wrong with it. Like, so if the user story says um, something about responding quickly to, to uh, user input, then you have to point out and say, well, what exactly do we mean by quickly? Um, you know, is this a half a second or is it a second? What percentage of users do we want to experience this um, uh, response time within a half a second? Now, in some cases, these um, these kinds of acceptance criteria will actually be broader than any one user story. They'll be general performance criteria for the entire product, um, in which case they should be captured and documented that way. But hopefully you get the picture that, that you don't just roll over and accept that, excuse me, that people are going to give you something that's inadequately defined and you just have to deal with it. Uh, Kimberly says, have you heard of companies that do Agile that have more meetings than what they currently have? Yep, I have. <laughs> I've done assessments with companies that did that, that went, that they, they transitioned to Agile, and one of the things that they found was that the meetings just exploded. Uh, it's totally dysfunctional. Uh, it's one of the reasons why a lot of people advocate stand-up meetings, but, you know, does it happen? Yep, it does. I've got a question from Harvey here, which is quite the coincidence. Harvey, I just had a reminder pop up in Outlook with your name on it saying that I needed to get in touch with you, and I sent you an email earlier today, but good to see you're, you're here online. hope you had a nice holiday. 
Uh, Harvey says, I have come to realize that testers assigned to agile teams must have strong personalities and have someone to escalate to if the rest of the team disagrees with the testers' concerns. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's all too easy when the tester is the lone, the lone tester, the lone quality person embedded within a, a, um, a sprint team for them to, to get steamrolled by that team if they don't have a strong enough personality. Um, and, uh, and in addition to the strong personality, that, that will avoid them being steamrolled, but it might, they might be outvoted. And, uh, you know, certainly you want to make sure that the tester isn't just being contrary and just going, well, you know, to hell with you guys. I'm going to escalate this to my manager because you, you, you frustrated me by not letting me be the quality cop or the process cop, right? Even that, that of course is disruptive and unpleasant behavior, which one would hope would not be something that, that a person would do unless they have, uh, Oh, what is that? Contrary personality disorder or something like that. There's actually a, there's a name for this. It's some kind of personality disorder that's associated with you're in a situation and you just automatically reflexively adopt the opposite tack of everybody else and, and, and make yourself a, you know, a massive, you know, pain in the ass on purpose. Uh, obviously, you don't want that kind of person in your organization to begin with. So assuming that you're not dealing with that kind of person, that, you know, the tester has legitimate concerns, which they have in good faith tried to work through within their sprint team, and they find that they cannot. They need to have some practical way of escalating that, which will not result in backlash to them, that, that, that they are safe to do that, that they're, they have permission to do that, provided that they don't abuse it. So you, you and I are totally on the same page on this, Harvey. Uh, Travis says, regarding the need for testers to acquire programming skills, regardless of whether your current role requires it, it never hurts to acquire a broader skill set. Indeed. At a minimum, it makes you a stronger candidate for future opportunities. That being said, after someone acquires programming knowledge, how should they go about acquiring programming experience if their current role does not provide the opportunity? The same goes with obtaining automation experience. Um, Second question, would taking free courses via an online learning management tool such as lynda.com be a be as valuable as taking programming courses at a uh, local community college? Thanks in advance for your feedback. So, um, so we, we are agreed that, you know, um, yeah, having, having the skill and knowledge is great. Either you need it now or you might need it in the future. So, um, yeah, we're on the same page there. Now, as far as, Acquiring the programming experience, hands-on type of experience and automation experience. Um, if you can't figure out a way of doing this at work, then you might be able to find ways of doing this as part of doing some volunteer work. Like, I don't know, let's say um, your, your local humane society or something like that has a website. They have some IT systems. And you, you volunteer to help them, uh, build some new features on their website or, or something along those lines, uh, or test some new features, uh, of their site, or you jump into some sort of open source development program and try to get involved in that way as a contributing automated test or something. If you can't figure out a way of getting paid for it, then, yeah, the usual, the usual answer to this question is, do it as volunteer work, get it on your resume legitimately that way, and um, 
and, and then maybe it becomes part of what you do uh, within your job eventually. Now, as far as your second question, online courses, are they as good as taking, um, say, a community college programming course? Um, th this depends on you, Travis, and your ability to uh, focus yourself and, and make make yourself go through the process of learning uh, without needing uh, peer pressure to do that. Um, you know that some some people are real good at that and can and and you know they can they can read books they can teach themselves things out of books and off of non-interactive or, or minimally interactive types of of material online and you know if you're more of an introvert that is something that's likely to work better for you because that's just sort of the way your brain is wired is you like to kind of sit by yourself and immerse yourself in in things and, and absorb information that way um, other people they really really need the interaction with folks uh, um, you know it, it it helps keep them focused it help keep helps keep them on track uh, so you you know what kind of learner you are um, and uh, uh, you know so use whichever of those approaches is, is going to work best for you it, I would say that just in general it does take more discipline to take advantage of a of a purely asynchronous online learning approach uh, than um, uh, you know participating in, in, a, in a live training class uh, Stefano says great point Rex in page 13 on extroverts and introverts personality and agile what about cultural differences in my company we develop a huge software product for TLC in a huge R&D organization spread across multiple sites Finland Poland Portugal India China etc uh, yeah yeah cultural cultural differences are are an issue for sure um, that now I don't know I mean what I have found with cultural differences in in distributed development work is that it's not so much the life cycle as just the cultural differences per se and you have to uh, you have to understand uh, those cultural differences and be able to effectively navigate in them that there's just no there's no substitute for that um, whether it's agile or not now are there elements of agile such as the stand-up meetings emphasis on face-to-face -face communication and so forth that are going to be it could be exacerbated by cultural differences. Yeah, there can. I mean, there's you know the sort of the the, the mythical or well the, the stereotypical thing about the, about uh, East Asian cultures, especially uh, Japan, as to you know not wanting to confront uh, topics that might prove embarrassing to someone in the context of an open meeting. Um, and so things get, can get kind of uh, uh, circuitous and opaque when those topics come up. Um, you know, yeah, that that can that can be an issue, though. You know, that, that's you have to be careful with those cultural stereotypes too, because they they don't they don't always apply. Um, but certainly, I would say yes. Watch for watch for situations where 
cultural proclivities, especially cultural proclivities with respect to communication, intersect with what you're trying to accomplish in, in Agile? Uh, Lena says, what do you suggest other than JIRA? Um, well, I'm, I would say that if you are looking to put a test management tool in place, that you need a test management tool. And JIRA is not a test management tool. And what I have heard people tell me about the test management plugins that are out there for JIRA is that those don't work very well. Um, so, you know, that what I would suggest is that you you sit down and you think carefully about what your requirements and your constraints are. Um, you document those. Uh, certainly, you should be able to easily come up with 30 or 40 uh, requirements and constraints. Um, I've, I've, when I've done this with clients, I've typically been able to come up with about 100. Um, and then you go through a careful and deliberate process of looking at the, you know, four or five dozen or more uh, test management tools that are out there and evaluating them against your requirements and uh, selecting a, a short list of two or three tools that you think you know might meet all of your essential requirements and doing some careful pilots with those and then making a, a decision and at that point rolling it out. What I highly do not recommend is trying to find somebody who is uh, an expert or calling themselves an expert and asking them what kind of tool should I get and then whatever they say you go out and get it because unless that person has actually been to your organization and they actually know what your requirements and constraints are then that that kind of free tool advice is worth exactly what you paid for in fact it's worth less than what you paid for because it, it's almost guaranteed to be bad advice so yeah don't, don't I, I you know I've <laughs> I have heard so many sad stories from clients with respect to tools that started off with some variation of shortcutting the tool selection process that I just described, and then crappy things ensued. So I've just become a believer in that. Just don't shortcut that. <laughs> Go figure out what exactly you need and then get that. Don't get what somebody just tells you, hey, this was really great. We used this at our last company, and it was really great because it may have been really great at their last company, but that doesn't mean it's going to be really great for you. Uh, Todd says, uh, how can you deal with developers being pulled off sprint tasks to address SWAT or help desk cases that come in during the sprint but still complete sprint tasks? Yeah, you know that that client that I was mentioning that, that, does, uh, that develops software for investment bankers, they have exactly that situation because – each of the components of their product is so specialized and people have been working on those for so long that if there's a bug in that particular component, the most senior member of that sprint team that works on that component has to get pulled off to fix it. And, and the fix has to be done, put into a patch, delivered to the affected customer, and then they have to do what's called backporting, which basically means they figure out where that bug was first introduced in all of the supported versions that they have, and they backport the bug fix into all of those supported versions, including the version that's currently under development. And this is this can pull this guy off for days, weeks in some cases, 
Um, and what they do is they just they that's that's just part of how they um, you know how they measure their velocity is that that, that periodically happens, um, and so that's part part of their velocity just takes into account you know there's a a reasonably good chance that somebody on the team is going to get pulled off, and you know so we're not going to we're not going to plan based on 100% availability of 100% of the team during 100% of the sprint. You know we're going to plan on something less than that, and if this happens to be the magic sprint where we actually get, get more uh, person hours than we would anticipate on sprint tests, then, you know, great, we'll, we'll pick something extra to do towards the end. But I think trying to pretend that that's, you know, not going to happen or say, oh, it's not okay that that happens. I mean, it just, you know, it, it happens. I mean, we, that's not the only client we have that has that, that, that need to deal with you know, the crisis du jour, um, and, 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 you know, business doesn't stop happening just because, you know, you're, uh, you're agile. Um, uh, Leica says when the testers work in agile, but the developers are not co-located and do not work closely with the testing team, what is the recommended way to approach such situations, because in such cases, the challenge testers face is their defects do not get closed fast, and they come across the same defects often, which might affect their agile tasks. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, sounds like what you're describing here is a distributed situation where testers are in one place and developers are someplace else, and that's not all that unusual. Um, and you have some sort of uh, communication issues between the testers and developers, which is also not unusual, but is is part of the problem here. Is that you, you know, um, one of the things that you want to try to break down in Agile is barriers to communication between people who are working together on teams. And it sounds like in your case, there is still a sort of a siloed or stovepiped kind of thing going on, where you got developers here and you got testers here and communications all gets funneled through certain formalized channels such as test managers to development manager and vice versa, bug tracking systems, all of which are great, but having some more direct contact I think would be uh, would be good. Um, now, in, in terms of uh, part of what you're describing here is uh, what's, what I would refer to as a long closure period. In other words, the, develop, the, the defects are active for a long time before they're fixed. Um, and it might, you might also be that what you're describing is a fairly large backlog, which is where there can actually be a significant number of defects that are open at the same time. Um, and those two things together, yes, will result in a large number of block tests and, uh, uh, duplicate defect reporting and so forth. So if that's what's going on, then what I would recommend is that you Measure the productivity impacts of those things and uh, try to use the Agile retrospective process as a way of, of addressing that. Uh, Silvio says, I'm good to hear from you, Silvio. Hope you had a nice holiday. Um, in a similar situation presented in Agile testing for systems, a system slide, so the Fortune 50 bricks and mortar and online retailer. Um, can this be considered a good practice to include in a systems integration test 
Also support for critical customer errors. Um, so bug production bug fixes. Um, I assume I, I'm trying to remember exactly, but I'm, I assume that production bugs, when identified in that organization, go into the product backlog and are prioritized for repair. Um, whether those go out in, in a patch form into production as well as being included within the projects underway, I don't remember exactly. Um, but certainly the, the best practice there would be, you know, being very careful that any patches that get applied into production, that those same changes also get incorporated into the code that's currently under development because uh, it, it's, it is immensely frustrating to end users and customers to have a problem go away and, uh, and then come back. So you have to be really careful that that doesn't ever occur. Oh, Lena says, thanks. Unfortunately, the enterprise has already chosen Jira with plugin. Well, um, best of luck to you. Everything that I've heard, I don't know what plugin specifically that is. I'm guessing it's Zephyr. Everything I've heard about that is not good. Um, but, I, you know, I, I hope that your experience with it is different than that which I've heard from everybody else. Uh, it says, laughing out loud sounds so familiar. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, let's see. Ivana says, is there some type of the systems for which you would not recommend Agile as a methodology? Uh, highest risk, highest complexity, Related to the QA challenges. Um, bum, bum, bum. Well, okay, so we have had clients. Well, let me let me first preface this by saying lifecycle methodologies, all they are are ways of organizing your work. They, 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 they say Oh well, you should you should organize your work in this fashion, or you should organize your work in this fashion, or you should organize your work in this fashion. Um, as far as I'm concerned, that prop properly applied any life cycle, um, which is is suitable in terms of its release cadence for your particular business problem, can be successfully applied um, if it's done with the brain turned on by all involved um, and. Similarly, any life cycle, even one which is perfectly capable of uh, working in the situation that you're, you're, you're working in, can fail when it's applied with the brain turned off. So, so I don't think that there's any, like, any real magic to this. Now, what I would say is that there are certain scenarios where... Um, there are business realities that make Agile less likely to succeed or less of a good fit. So, for example, our clients that are doing regulated systems uh, that have to produce 
large volumes of documentation in order to convince regulators that they have done all of the development and testing tasks, which they should, uh, some of those clients have tried Agile and abandoned it because they found that the uh, lightweight um, uh, documentation philosophy of Agile was not a good fit, given the kind of documentation they had to produce for their auditors. So it didn't really give them any benefits because they couldn't take advantage of that. They were still having to produce heavyweight documentation. And they decided, well, since we're going to have to do that anyway, and that doesn't really fit within two-week sprints, let's just go back to doing waterfall. And they did. But I have clients that are doing safety-critical systems that are regulated that are also doing Agile and just continue to do it. And they've just sort of figured out how to how to put that saddle on the cow. <laughs> um, so... You know, I mean, I think you just have to kind of look at your situation and look at look at Agile and what what does Agile assume, and then say, you know, is this is, is this going to uh, help us or hurt us in in these situations, right? But um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't really think that there's anything that's like inherently anti-Agile or inherently Agile. Um, you know, I would say that if you're if, when you're customizing an off-the-shelf product, um, you know that's that's kind of a of a strange uh, scenario to do agile in some ways, and and uh, we I guess don't see a whole lot of that that's being done in an agile agile way. Um, you know, it's more companies that are developing software for their own internal use or for for sale, um, but you know, uh, Ivana, as I understand what you're doing, you guys are developing software for internal use, um, and so you know, there's nothing inherently anti-agile about uh, about what you're doing. Uh, let's see. Uh, Okay, so Lika says thank you. So you're welcome. Answer to your question. Um, so that's great. So uh, got some good questions here. Uh, good, pretty good turnout for a, a dead week like this. <laughs> Congratulate all of you um, coming coming back and getting your brain reengaged. Um, right, even even though New Year's is coming. Um, so to close this session, do remember we run these free webinar sessions once a month. Now we we are going. We had one scheduled for Wednesday of next week. We are going to move that to the following Wednesday. You'll get an announcement about that shortly if you've already signed up. Uh, we're having to do that because we have a uh, scheduling conflict with some meetings. Um, so, but we do run the webinars once a month. Uh, check the website rbcs-us.com to sign up. Uh, while you're there, you can sign up for our regular free newsletter. So it'll get you valuable discounts on consulting and training services and a regular newsletter that includes a featured article on software testing and quality and news about what RBCS and its partners are doing lately. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Um, as you can see, we're you know, at RBCS, or if you're more technical focus, uh, Mr. Estet. Uh, we're on Facebook at Testing Improved by RBCS. Uh, we're on LinkedIn and uh, YouTube as well. Of course, these... Uh, um, current and previously recorded webinars are posted regularly, so you'll see those out on, on the YouTube channel and uh, um, you know, with, uh, various uh, posts about them. Um, 
blog is back, rbcs-us.com slash blog. So it's a, you can give that a listen or give that a read. Um, and I'm also doing occasional video um, blog type of things on YouTube. So you can take uh, you can take a look at that. We offer these free resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not-just-for-profit company. Don't forget, we also need to keep the lights on, so please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. Thanks, everybody, for attending, and I look forward to seeing you at subsequent webinars.